Good to be with you guys. Uh, wonderful to be in, in your neighborhood and here gathered with you guys as a church. And I do hope that your retreat was refreshing. I know the theme was rest, unplugging. And uh, what, a, what a great day to uh, kind of end the retreat and then great way to end it through this Lord's Day gathering where you unplug together and rest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? So let's turn to Romans. We're going to be at Romans chapter 1. And today what I want to do is look at just two verses, verse 16 and 17, and uh, look at the gospel, which is what we rest in. You know, all of our physical rest is important, but the physical rest really comes out of our spiritual rest that we have in Christ. We cease from our work uh, so that we might rest in him. And uh, in particular, I want to focus today on uh, why you need not be ashamed of the gospel. And I love the fact that you guys do evangelism on the block together regularly. That's encouraging. And then also in your personal lives, uh, what I want to do is look at these two, two verses and, and ask ourselves, first of all, am I ashamed of the gospel? And secondly, there, uh, why am I ashamed of the, of the gospel? And to know that there is no reason that I ought to be ashamed of the gospel message. So super simple today. Sound good? Amen. Uh, so let's read it and then we'll pray and then we will dive in together. Uh, if you would stand with me while we read God's word. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and verse 17. It says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I want to preach to you on these two verses on the title. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now. I pray that you would speak through me. Give me clarity in my preaching. I pray that I would preach your truths, not merely my own ideas. I pray that you would open our hearts to be recipients of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. may be seated. A few years ago, my wife and I uh, had the opportunity to share the gospel with a young lady named Bina. Bina was a waitress at a restaurant, a Nepalese restaurant in Baltimore, where, where I live. And uh, uh, right on Charles Street there, a uh, lot of great food, by the way, on Charles Street in Baltimore. Great little Nepalese restaurant called Lumbini, if you ever get up there. So Bina wor- worked at Lumbini. And um, my wife and I would go there regularly. We got to know her. She would talk about her family in Nepal and... Uh, she would describe how beautiful Nepal is and how hospitable they are. And, and she was like, you know, when, when I go back, you guys should come visit us. So we got to the point in our relationship with, with her that we kind of realized, like, we really need to share the gospel with her. And so I started talking about religion and gospel stuff. And, and, um, and she, she was Hindu. Uh, and I asked her, I was like, could we just get together at some point and just talk? And so we met there at Lumbini. Uh, when, when they were closed for business, we sat there at one of the tables and, uh, and I asked her about the Hindu religion. And, um, so she, she talked to me all about, um, I'm sorry, not Hindu, she was, uh, Buddhist. She was Buddhist. She talked to me all about Buddhism and, uh, all the, the various traditions, 
But she couldn't tell me anything about the afterlife or any kind of confidence that she would have in knowing God. And she really didn't know anything about God. She just knew, knew these various traditions. So she allowed me the opportunity then to share Christianity with her. And I'm all over the place. She was not Buddhist. She was Hindu. All right. My, it's, my mind's uh, uh, coming, coming back to reality here. Anyway, my point is this. I got to share the gospel with her. All right. <laughs> so here's the thing. Before I shared the gospel with her, um, I asked her, I said, I said, so you've been in America for a couple of years. Um, ha- do you know any Christians? Do you know anything about Christianity? Christianity? She said, well, yeah, I know, um, I know four Christians. We ride a, a, a one hour commute to school and back home every day. And I was like, oh, cool. So what have they told you about the Christian faith? Nothing. Mm. One hour. There and back. If I'm doing my math right, that's two hours a day, every day. And they haven't shared one word about the gospel. And I was sad. I was sad not because I felt like superior to them, because now I had the opportunity to do it and I was going to. I felt sad because I saw myself in them. You know, how many times have I had an opportunity that I didn't take. Why? I don't know. Like maybe it's because I thought I would come across as too churchy. Maybe because I thought that our relationship wasn't there yet. You know, still trying to build some rapport with the individual, not ready to share the gospel yet. Maybe I was just too lazy. I don't know why, but I know that I've been there and had the opportunity and I was at the end of the day, I was ultimately ashamed of the gospel. So I had the opportunity to share the gospel with being, being, and I I enjoyed it, but I was also convicted. Mm. I I turn here because Romans chapter one, verse 16 and 17, these, these, these verses both convict me and encourage me. They convict me because I know that there's been times where I've been ashamed. They encourage me because Paul shows us here five ways that he is not ashamed of the gospel. And if Paul's not ashamed of the gospel and he's a human being just like me, then I don't I know I don't have to be ashamed of the gospel anymore. And you don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. If you're a Christian, I'm sure you don't wake up thinking to yourself, I want to be ashamed of the gospel today. No, you want people to know Jesus. Yeah. If you're ashamed of the gospel, those that you are around, your friends, you, you, they, they don't have the opportunity through you to know Christ. Mm. And so like their eternity is at stake. On, so let us look at these, passage, uh, uh, these two verses in this passage and let us not be ashamed of the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Let's just stop right there. So the original reader would have been who? The Romans, right? Those living in Rome had a lot of reasons in the flesh to be ashamed of the gospel. Historians tell us that the Romans had opposition on every side. They had opposition from the Greeks because the Greeks thought that they were pagans because they weren't worshiping all of the gods, the deities. 
And so they were accused of being pagans. They had all these false accusations against them. It wasn't a good look from the Greeks. They had no acceptance. On the other hand, though, there was a lot of Jews in Rome. And the Christians didn't have acceptance from the Jews. Because the Christians talked about a savior, a Messiah. Jews agree with the Messiah idea. But they talked about a Messiah who, who died. Who suffered and died. And then three days later rose again. And that his kingdom is not a physical kingdom where we're going to come in and take over the kingdom right now. Or take over the world right now and set up his kingdom. But rather it was a spiritual kingdom. Ruling and reigning in our hearts. And that was like gobbledygook for the Jews. They were like, that's nonsense. Opposition on every side. And so as he's writing of his own testimony that I'm not ashamed, theologians and historians say we can just assume that the reader was ashamed of the gospel. That's why he's addressing it. And, and Tim Keller, he gives four different reasons today as to why in our flesh it's easy to be ashamed of the gospel. Let me give them to you really quick. Number one, first, the gospel tells us that we are unable to save ourselves. I quote, the gospel by telling us that, we're, uh, or that our salvation is free and undeserved is really insulting. It tells us that we are such spiritual failures that the only way to gain salvation is for it to be a complete gift. And this offends moral and religious people who think their decency gives them an advantage over less moral people. Come on Secondly, the gospel is offensive. Because we believe that Jesus had to die for us. And this offends the self-righteous. You know, at the core of our fleshly beings, we want to believe that we are ultimately good people. And to say that, no, Jesus had to die for you, that's insulting. I was in, uh, in a gospel conversation with two Muslims uh, this past August who came out to one of our uh, uh, events, our outreach events. And they were genuinely offended when I said that Jesus came to die for people like you. Sinners like me. Like the, we are actually bad enough to where we need a savior. They were offended. It's offensive. Third, no one is good enough to be saved. And if you don't come to Jesus, you will not be saved. That's offensive to the flesh. We are like these weirdos who actually believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Fourth reason the gospel can be offensive. Why we might be ashamed of it. The gospel is about Jesus suffering and serving, not conquering and destroying. Mm. We're called to be like Jesus. We're called to suffer well. We're called to serve well. And this offends the easy, safe life. It offends those who want to seek retribution and anger. Not to mention, we talk about things like sin, faith, heaven, hell, judgment, God's law, morality, uh, our need for grace. Every bit of it is offensive to the flesh. Have you ever been ashamed of the gospel. Come on, brother. Now, before you are quick to say no, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and I agree with him, he says, if you say no, I've never been ashamed of the gospel. He said, it's probably because you don't have an exceptional view of the gospel. Yeah. It's not because you're an exceptional Christian. <laughs> Meaning, if we really understand what the gospel message 
is we have to understand that it does come with an offense. Not that we have to be offensive. You know, this is the problem with too many other Christians is, is that they're the offensive one. You know, the way that they communicate it, the way they come across, the way they come at people. No, let us not be a stumbling block to the gospel. Why? It's because the gospel is a stumbling block. It's because the gospel is, is, a, is offensive in and of itself. Are you with me? Yeah, brother. So the gospel is offensive. Um, therefore, we need this message. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, we have this beautiful introduction to the whole letter. Uh, I encourage you to read it this afternoon. Uh, it's a summary of the gospel message. And uh, we see this display of affection through the gospel that Paul has for the church. In verse 15, Paul then says that he's eager to get to Rome. He's eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. And then he tells us in verse 16 and 17 why he's eager to preach the gospel. And I, I want to argue that verse 16 and 17 is the main point of Romans. So if anybody asks you, what's the main point of Romans? You can sound really smart just by saying it's verse 16 and 17. The heart of the gospel. The heart of why Paul is writing Romans. Right here, verse 16 and 17. For, this is why I'm not ashamed, or this is why I'm eager to preach. For, verse 16. For, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Five reasons why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel that I want to give you. Five reasons why you need not be ashamed of the gospel message. Number one, the gospel reports what is good. The gospel reports what is good. There's another four here. He says, four, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Four. Why? Well, Gospel itself literally means good message. It's an old word. Paul certainly has in mind the Old Testament as he uses the word gospel here. I'm not ashamed of this good news. In Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7, we read that uh, uh, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring what? Good news. Who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to, God, uh, to Zion, your God reigns. So this Old Testament view of the gospel was, was such a beautiful, or it was such a beautiful message, such a good message, that the feet of those who are taking this message around are called beautiful, lovely, wonderful. Paul also probably has in mind the current secular use of the word gospel in in his day and age so in the greek world gospel was also a greek word and it was a word that they would use regularly for example about a decade before jesus was born emperor augustus was was hailed as the savior of the world and as the son of god whose birth and i quote marks the beginning of the gospel. And as Rome would go into various territories and lands, they would conquer these lands, and then they would send in their messengers, and they would say, good news, Rome has conquered your land, and now you're a citizen of this kingdom. So Paul's taking this 
very much a biblical Old Testament view of the gospel. And I think he's also kind of sticking it to Rome a little bit. And he's saying, look, the Savior has arrived. The Son of God is here, and his birth marks the beginning of the gospel. And as this message goes forward, we are proclaiming good news. This one, Jesus has conquered, and the kingdom has come. It's good news. All right, application. The gospel literally means good news. Therefore, we need not apologize for the gospel. It's good news. You know, I sometimes hear Christians uh, say something like, man, you know, I, I don't really like this part of Christianity, but it's true, so I'm going to tell you anyway. Don't apologize for the gospel. It's all, every bit of it is good news. It's God's truth. And God is good. So God's truth is good. Yes, yes, it can be offensive to the flesh. But don't believe that just because something's offensive means that it's not good. Secondly, the gospel restores sinners to God. Why not be ashamed of the gospel? Because the gospel restores sinners to God. Look at verse 16 again. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For, here's the, here's the reasoning, the foundation. It is the power of God for salvation. Power. Somebody say power. Power. Exodus chapter, uh, or well, let me just do a broad overview of Exodus. Exodus, you know the story of Exodus. 420 years. We, we got the people of Israel, the Hebrews, locked up in Exodus. Power for the, the, the Jewish reader would have immediately connected them back with the Exodus narrative. And if you know the story, the Hebrews are uh, they're enslaved. Things get really bad. They, they begin methodically murdering their babies. Uh, they're overworking them to death. They're trying to wipe out the whole race. And in chapter 2 of Exodus... It says that the, the cries of the Hebrews, they reach the throne room of God. It says God hears and God knows. He sees. He sees the injustice. He sees their pain. And by the time we get to Exodus chapter 9, God has already brought then Israel out of Egypt. And he says this, for this reason, I raised you up. For this reason, I brought you up out of, out, of, uh, out of Egypt, out of slavery. For this reason, he says, to show you my power. Mm. Why did he do it? To show power. So here we're told that the gospel is the power of God. The power of God for all who believe. The gospel then has the ability to restore sinners' With God. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a tough place. What my mom used to call it, between a rock and a hard place. You ever heard that term? Yeah. Uh, it comes out of Homer's Odyssey, where you've got a man-eating uh, monster on one side, a deadly whirlpool on the other side. And, and Homer says he was between a rock and a hard place, meaning there is no good way out. Mm. I don't know if you've ever felt that. That you, you don't have a good way. There is no way out. Listen, the, the Hebrews had no good way out of Egypt. They could have tried to rebel and been squashed. They could have run toward the sea and drowned. 
But God in his power did something that they could not do for themselves. And he moved and he brought them out. As we read here that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, what we're told is that the very same power which brought the Hebrews out of Egypt, that same power is at work when you fumble through the gospel message with somebody. And, and, and you know, you, you never feel like you communicate it strong enough and good enough. And, you know, Jesus, he died on the cross for you. And you're just, you're saying these things and you're like, are they getting it? I, I wish I could somehow say it harder or say it better or draw a picture that like fully, and I can't quite communicate. The gospel, that good news, that message that you kind of fumble through has the power of God to save a soul from hell. And so therefore, we need not be ashamed of it. Amen? Amen. If you happen to be new to Christianity, welcome here, first of all. Secondly, I want you to know that when we talk about salvation, when he says it's the power of God unto salvation, he's, he's talking about two different things. First, salvation means deliverance. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that we are saved from the wrath of God. Meaning the tyranny of uh, Egypt was not really the biggest problem. The biggest problem is our tyranny against sin and death. And our salvation is fully seen when we are saved from God's wrath. But there's a second view of salvation as well, a different angle, and that is that of healing. We are sin-sick rebels, and the gospel has the power to save us from the wrath of God and to bring healing to our sin-sickness. To restore fellowship between us and God. Meaning we are saved now and we will be saved when we are fully with God forever. Now the question that I want to ask though is, is this. How is anybody saved? Where is the power of God to bring about that salvation? Again, friends, it's in this call to repent and believe. We can trust God will do his work that we can't do in converting lost souls through the proclamation of the gospel. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and the salvation. The gospel reports what is good. The gospel restores sinners to God. Third, the gospel reaches for the whole world. The gospel reaches for the whole world. To whom is this gospel message offered? Verse 16, he says, To everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God to all who obey, to all who have the ability to follow the law, to all who are good. No, he says to all who believe, to all who believe. And we got to ask this question, is belief itself an act of righteousness? Is that something good that we do to earn salvation? No, belief itself is grace. So in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, we're told that we are saved not because of the righteous things we do. Hebrews 11.8 says that Abraham believed and his belief was credited to, uh, to him as righteousness. As we believe, it's God just simply depositing into our broke bank accounts all of the righteousness of Christ. I, I read an illustration on belief to explain this. Imagine that I wrote you a check for a million dollars, all right? Better yet, imagine you wrote me a check for a million dollars. 
what do I have to do to get that million dollars? I've got to turn the check over and sign it, put my name on it, endorse it. Now imagine you give me this check and I sign it and I cash it and I get a million dollars and I start walking it around telling everybody, hey, look, I earned a million dollars. You would say, hold up. I gave that to you. That was a gift. You see, my endorsement of your gift doesn't mean that I did anything for it. That's what belief is. Belief is to endorse the gift. It's to appropriate the gift and say, this is for me. This is mine. I'm putting this on. I'm wearing it as if it is mine. And so when we're calling our, our, our lost friends to believe, we're calling them to say, Jesus died, not just for somebody, but he died for me. He died for me. And in, in your personal evangelism, that's a helpful tactic to just tell them, you've got to understand that Jesus didn't just die for somebody out there, but he died for you. And you receive it. Believe. For all who believe, meaning indiscriminate. There's, there's, there's not a particular kind of person Jesus died for. There's not a class he died for. It is open to all. An open door. An open invitation. Verse 16, he says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There, I think what he's simply saying is it's for everybody. Is this gospel for your children? Yes. Is this gospel for your brother who you don't talk to anymore? Yes. Is this gospel for your neighbor? who you don't even like. Mm. Yes. Is this gospel for the person who you don't think will ever believe? Listen, don't, don't write somebody off because you don't think they will ever believe. You know, how many times have you had a conversation with somebody? They're, they're like, you know, I would share the gospel with them. I, I've thought about it. I've tried it, but they're, they're, they're just not going to be a Christian. They're an atheist or they're a Muslim or whatever. I'm not going to invite them to church. I'm not going to show, you know, it's like, wait a second. I don't think it's on me to decide whether or not God has the power to save that individual. He's got the power to save all. Don't write off anybody just simply because you don't think they're going to get it. God can save. Amen. Therefore, we need not be ashamed of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Number four, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Number four, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Look at verse 17. He says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, what is the righteousness of God that is revealed through the gospel? Commentators say that the righteousness of God may have three different meanings. Number one, it might mean God's distributive righteousness. This is the negative aspect of God's righteousness. This is his judgment on the wicked. Now, we get a little nervous. I get a little nervous when I hear of judgment. Because I think of human courts. I think of the way humans tend to judge others. And we don't do a very good job all the time, do we? I just read a story uh, three years ago. 84-year-old Isaiah Andrews was uh, exonerated in Cleveland after serving 46 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. You know, human courts make severe mistakes. But God's righteousness is seen in his judgments. Think about that. His righteousness is put on display 
in his judgment. He will never judge wrongly. That's his distributive righteousness. Commentators say the righteousness of God here in verse 17, it could be his definitive righteousness. Meaning God's action of establishing what is right. You know, nobody saves themselves. No more than the Hebrews could have walked out of Egypt. But when God moves in his definitive righteousness, he rights wrongs, heals the broken, forgives the sinners, lifts the shame, places us in Christ, and he makes us his people. Commentators say the righteousness of God in verse 17 could refer to his declarative righteousness. That is the act of justification declaring one by grace to be right. Meaning, if I were to say to my kid, Chapman, if I were to say, Chapman's five, if I were to say, hey, if, if you clean your room, I'll take you to the park. If your room is clean, it's got to be totally clean. If your room is clean, we'll go. An hour later, I walk upstairs to his bedroom. And it's still a mess. And I clean it up myself. And I bring Chapman in. And I said, if your room is clean, you can go to the park. Did he do it? No. I did it. I'm declaring him to be right. I'm declaring him to be worthy of going to the park for something he did not do. This is God's declarative righteousness. If you live a sinless life, if you have total righteousness, you can be with me. Christ did it for you. He lived a right, life of righteousness that you could not live. He died in your place to bring forgiveness. And God says, look at Christ. You're in him. I put you in him. Amen. His declarative righteousness. So which one is it? When we see here, verse 17, for in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. What is it? Which one is it? I think it's all three. Meaning, in the gospel, the whole of God's righteousness is put on display. God distributes our righteousness, or I'm sorry, God dis distributes his judgment on sin in the gospel. God rescues and restores definitive righteousness, and God declares us to be righteousness in the gospel message. There is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The righteousness of God is put on display in the gospel message. And so what's our response? Well, our response is right there. It's faith. Look at verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. From faith, for faith, the righteous shall live by faith. What do you think the, the key is right here? What's the key word? Faith. 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 Faith is the beginning and faith is the end of our response. We're saved by faith. The monk Martin Luther entered a monastery searching for his own righteousness. And he, he all of his best attempts were just displays of his own screwed up nature. It's said of Luther that he would go into the confessional booth and he would sit there for hours confessing his sins to the priest. Uh, and then as soon as he would walk out of the confessional booth, he would remember another sin and go back in and keep confessing his sins. And then as soon as he would walk out, he would 
have a bad thought and then walk right back in and keep confessing his sins. He could not do enough to earn righteousness, to earn anything with God. And so Luther read this verse right here. This verse, verse 17. And, and uh, uh, he, he said this, he says, but what works do I have? What works can come out of a heart like mine? How can I stand before the holiness of my judge with works polluted in their very source? And he read verse 17, which says the righteous shall live not by works, but by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Fifth, as a result, the gospel rewrites our future. The gospel rewrites our future. It rewrites our destiny. You see, we often think of destiny as this pinnacle of uh, success that we create, that we can kind of go after and discover and find. My wife and I used to play chess together. Stay with me. I'm going to get somewhere with this. My wife and I used to play chess together and we quit because we are both way too competitive and it was creating all sorts of marriage problems. But we would, we would go at each other on this chessboard, trying to figure out who's going to win, trying to, you know, and she would always win. Actually, that's why we quit. If I'm going to be honest, she would win. I would get upset. And at some point she was like, this is just not helping our marriage. As, as, as intense as we would get into the chess game, there's this old Italian proverb that says this. Once the game is over, the king and the pawn go back into the same box. Meaning we're, we're strategizing our board. We're, we're thinking about our destiny. We're trying to get to where we want to go in life. And our, our best strategy, thinking through our next move, where the pawns are at, trying to get the other queen, queen trying to win the game. When this, when this game is over, the pawns and the kings all go back in the same box. And that box is buried 10 feet under the ground from dust to dust. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. But the gospel rewrites our destiny. The gospel leads us to life. The, the ESV version of this uh, verse says the righteous shall live by faith. And I think that that's accurate. But I think that the way it's written could be slightly misunderstood. We might believe that it's to say the righteous shall live with a lot of faith or the righteous shall live with a certain quality of faith. But the literal word for word translation of this verse simply says this. The righteous by faith shall live. You see, our response is faith. And the result is what? We live. The righteous by faith shall live. Meaning the box couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't keep him. And Jesus in his resurrection rewrote our destiny. As he calls to us to turn from our sins and trust in him, he promises us life everlasting. Friends, isn't the gospel good? 
Like it is a great message. And so therefore Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Because it reports what is good. It restores the sinners to God. It, it reaches for the whole world. It reveals the righteousness of God and it rewrites our future. Why should we not be ashamed of the gospel message? Answer, because it's so good. Amen. That's really my message today. The gospel is good. Your gospel confidence flows from your gospel comfort. I'll close with this story. When I was in college, when I was in college, I fell in love with this peanut butter chocolate pie in the cafeteria. I remember the first time I had it. I was sitting in the cafeteria and got a piece of this peanut butter chocolate pie. You know, the crust was chocolate. Can you imagine how good this was? So you just kind of bite it and it's like peanut butter and then it's chocolate. It was amazing. And so I took a bite of this pie and I just stopped and I looked around the room. And I was like, has anybody tried this pie? This is amazing. And I took it and I just kept eating it. And I'm like, this is, and so, so by the time that lunch period was over, everybody was eating this pie. All right. The next day I went into the cafeteria and there was no peanut butter chocolate pie. And so I went up to the lunch lady and I was like, Hey, where's the pie? And she was like, I'm sorry, let me go get it. So, and that became the thing. So every day, as soon as I would walk in, the lunch lady would see me and she was like, go to the back, bring out the pie, right? Everybody knew that I loved the peanut butter chocolate pie and half the student body joined me in loving the peanut butter chocolate pie. Why? Because I tasted and saw that the pie was good. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this? His word is like honey on our lips. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Your gospel confidence comes out of your gospel comfort when you know that the gospel is good and you believe it, friends, you want to proclaim it. What a savior we have. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, this simple but profound two verses that remind us that there is no reason that we ought to be ashamed of the gospel message. I pray, God, that we would take every opportunity that we have to share the gospel with those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.